Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Now we're coming back to uh, Philippians after a few weeks' break, and we'll be here, I think, over the uh, holiday weeks, and we're going to read Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, page 980, or if you're using the large print Bible, 1165. As you're turning there, uh, I think I can say from long experience, uh, from many people saying, I came to hear you preach, but you weren't there, that uh, if you're a former member of Trinity and have come back with the hope of hearing David Gibson preach, um, then it's Murphy's Law uh, in the ecclesiastical form. Well, uh, it's a week or two since we were in Philippians, um, so I think we might be helped by following the example of the Olympic high jumpers um, who seem to drop back a little before they take the plunge and rock back, if you'll excuse the expression, to chapter 1, verse 27, which really gives us the context for the remarkable passage that we are turning to today. So, chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake." engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind." Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Incidentally, I think it would have been much healthier if the translators had translated that, emptied himself rather than made himself nothing, which in fact is not what Jesus did. He did not make himself nothing. So, he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we've come in Philippians to what is undoubtedly one of the great mountain peaks of the whole of the New Testament, probably in that sense also the whole of the Bible. And I think even as we read these verses, although they are set out as prose, you can sense and would have sensed from the two hymns we've sung and will sense from the next two hymns that we sing that they have a very lyrical quality to them, so much so that some commentators have believed that they actually were originally a hymn in the New Testament church. And Drew has obviously ransacked the hymns based on Philippians 2, 5 to 11 uh, to help us get this into our minds. Personally, I suspect that this is much more a confession of the early Christian church, perhaps uh, written by Paul for use in the churches that he planted and served. But in any case, he waxes eloquent. Uh, there is, in this sense, uh, a taste of the end of Romans 8 in the way in which he speaks here, and in this form in which he describes the person and work of the Lord Jesus, coming from the highest position in heaven to the lowest position on earth in order to be exalted back to the highest position and to be worshipped by every creature. It's one of the great New Testament passages. Some would say the greatest New Testament passage on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something very striking about this passage as well as similar passages, and that is every single one of them describing the personal work of Jesus Christ seems to have in view the personal transformation of Christians, always seems to have a pastoral and practical intent. I know some of you uh, listen to our friend Alistair Begg on his program, Truth for Life, where the learning is for living. And that captures the way in which the Apostle Paul constantly writes about Jesus Christ. I think there is really no exception to this, that Jesus Christ is set before us in order to have one of three effects. First, to bring us to worship Him. Second, to enable us to become like Him. And thirdly, to deal with dysfunctions in our lives or in the life of a church family. And you can sense that these verses actually do all of these. Uh, we are singing them in various ways because they bring us to worship Him 
to join those knees that will bow to Him and call Him Lord. And they also serve to transform us, um, and that we will see. But they're also set within the context of Paul's concern about dysfunction in our Christian lives, and also his concern that there may be the beginnings of dysfunction in the Christian church at Philippi, which he obviously loves so much, he calls them uh, his joy and crown congregation. He embraces them in a variety of ways. But he's also conscious, perhaps knowing Jesus' statement that where Christ builds His church, the gates of hell seek to destroy it, that there are forces encroaching on the church at Philippi, and the value of what he says here is because these powers always encroach on every single real Christian church. A kind of intimidation that comes from outside, whether by persecution or in the case of the church in Philippi, by false teaching, and he deals with that in chapter 3, or internally forces that arise within the church that cause division in the church, that cause dissension and alienation, that are destructive not only of the church's fellowship and the church's unity, but inevitably destructive of the power of the church's witness. It seems to me in the world in which we live there are few elements in the Christian witness more powerful than the beauty of the harmony of a living fellowship of God's people. It bespeaks the power of Jesus Christ to change lives. And Paul is concerned about this in different ways. Later on in chapter 2, he gives little hints that there may be murmuring and complaining. In chapter 4, he actually calls out two of the women in the church. And all of this then helps us to make sense of language that he had used earlier on. For example, early in chapter 1, he had made his prayer for all of you. He loved their partnership in the gospel. This is how I feel about all of you, he says. You are all partakers with me of the grace of Christ. And then at the end of chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2, he's calling them to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. Verse 2, having the same mind, having the same love, having full accord, having one mind. And all of those little phrases that, if you're anything like me, your eye tends to skip over because you know that the, the meaty stuff is coming is actually saying in are these a dozen different expressions that his great concern here is for the power of their witness as a church that is united. And as I think I hinted last time, although I will not charge you with remembering, uh, I do remember a hundred years ago, just up the road, hearing the late John Stott say, when I was a member of the Christian Union here, the secret of Christian unity is 
humility. And I had the temerity to add to that, but the secret of humility is Jesus Christ. The secret of unity is the humility that we express to one another, but the secret of that humility does not lie in ourselves. It doesn't lie in our strenuous efforts to say to ourselves when we fail, I must try to be more humble. For the Apostle Paul, it always lies in this. The secret of humility is to be found in Jesus Christ. Because humility, as we know, is not simply our ability to think less of ourselves. Real humility involves being delivered from thinking about ourselves at all. Uh, some of you will know uh, the hymn by Anna Laetitia Waring. There's this marvelous line in it about a heart at leisure from itself to soothe and sympathize. And it's telling, isn't it? So long as my heart is taken up with myself, even if my heart is taken up with myself and my efforts to be humble, I'm simply engrossed with myself and not set free from myself. Not in the language the Apostle Paul uses experiencing the reality of being crucified to myself in order that I, like Christ, might be set free to live for others. And the way in which this is produced in us, Paul is saying in chapter 2, verse 5, is when we have this mind among ourselves, and therefore in each of us, that we find in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. And I think the logic of what Paul is saying here as uh, the sermon title indicates, requires us to step back from this passage and see that Paul is actually speaking here about three minds or three mindsets. In the order of the text, there is the mindset that we are to have, the mindset that Christ has, and the mindset that God the Father has. But that first, our mindset although he mentions it first, is actually altogether dependent on the two other mindsets. And so, I want to look at these three mindsets in that order, the mind of Christ, the mind of God the Father, and the mind of the Christian believer, and spend more time on the first. I'll tell you that in advance than on the second and the third, because the other two flow what does he have to say about the mindset of Christ? And you'll see that he, he, he gives us two perspectives on the mindset of Christ. He, he gives us a perspective on Christ's divine identity. He was in the form of God. Now, Paul operated intellectually in, in two worlds, I think. I, I, uh, a Hellenistic world, a Greek world, the, the world of the Roman Empire, 
the world of the Greek philosophical tradition on the one hand, into which he spoke, but also from the background of the Old Testament Scriptures. And that, to me, is suggestive of the fact that when he says that Christ was in the form of God, he probably means two things. The first is that he really was divine, that he had the form of God in the sense that his very nature is a divine nature. And that, of course, is the teaching of the whole of the New Testament. He is himself divine. He is the second person of the Trinity. To use the language of John, he was in the beginning with God, he was face to face with God, and he himself was God. The very thing that Thomas confesses at the end of John's gospel, my Lord and my God. So, the wonder of what Paul is about to say is dependent on the dignity of Jesus' identity. The highest place that heaven affords is His, is His by right. But I suspect Paul is also using the word forum here in a more Hebraic sense with his Old Testament background. Um, in the Old Testament, God's people longed to see the forum of God. That was what excited them about the golden calf. This God has a forum. But the only form in which they ever saw God was the form of His glory. The various manifestations of His being that all seemed to have this marvelous sense of unapproachable brightness, like the glory of God appearing in the burning bush, or as David alluded to in prayer earlier on, the bright shining glory of God in the cloud that preceded them by day and by night, that overshadowed them in the bright cloud that came when the temple was dedicated, a cloud so bright that at the end of the day, man could not stare at it any more than he could stare at the sun without being blinded. And so Moses, who wants to see the form of God, is placed into the rock, and he sees only the, the backside of the passing of the sheer glory of God the glory of God that the seraphim saw in Isaiah chapter 6, but had to veil their faces. At the end of the day for the Bible, the glory of God, which we cannot behold and live, but in whose brightness everything about our lives begins to make sense. And that's what Paul is speaking about here the bright effulgence of the nature of God that Hebrews chapter 1 speaks about. This is Jesus' possession as the Son of God, face to face with the Father, unblinking before the glory of God, reflecting the glory of God. This is who he is. And this, undoubtedly, I often wonder, what was it like for 
the glorious Son of God to live in the sin-polluted world. I mean, when I leave a building now, I, I, I take in a deep breath before I leave for the next 10 yards in case I smell or inhale any smoke to which I think I've become increasingly allergic. And I often think, what must it have been like for Jesus to be constantly sensing He was surrounded by sin and shame and failure and rebellion against God? And this is actually the point that Paul wants to make, that although He was in the form of God, and here is the second dimension, He didn't count that equality He had with God. Clearly, Paul is making the point, He was Himself God. He had equality with God. But at no point did He say, my being God means that I will not stoop to bear their sin. That's why I think it's so important that maybe, maybe the church's version has improved the translation of Philippians chapter 2. I should have looked that up. He didn't empty Himself by becoming nothing. The wonder of the incarnation is that He remained everything He was, although rarely showing His transcendent glory. And He emptied Himself, not by reduction, but by taking. And this is where Paul's words are so astonishing. What could one who is equal with God possibly take? Well, he tells us, and this I say is why it is so astonishing, he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I mean, it's down, 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 down. Not by becoming nothing, but by taking our humanity, by entering our fallen world, and entering our fallen world in the form of a servant. And just as when Paul says he was in the form of God, he really means that both in nature and expression, he was God himself. Now, He's saying both in nature, in our human nature, and in expression, and that expression is all over the Gospels, isn't it? He takes the form of a servant, and not only the form of a servant, but the form of a particular servant, a servant who becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I know it's hard for us, partly because if we're Christian believers, the cross means so much to us, partly because of the way we sing about it, in the cross of Christ I glory, for us to, to feel the impact of that word. People who are living in a Roman colony, I'm sure you've been told often enough before the, the, the occasions when the great Roman orator and politician Cicero 
in a couple of his uh, legal speeches, one a defense speech, the other a prosecution speech, affirms that the very word cross should be absent from the vocabulary of Roman citizens. They should never think of the cross, see the cross, touch the cross. Crucifixion filled with shame. And this, of course, is exactly Paul's point. The cross in which we glory was for him the place of abject shame. I sometimes think, although I cannot bring myself to imagine, that he died naked, pierced. One of the writers in the past said that he thought this was many years ago now, doubtless medical analysis has changed, but in those days, every category of wound could be found in the body of the Lord Jesus when they took Him down from the cross. And I think it's fairly evident that in all that Paul is saying here, there are, there are echoes of the Old Testament Scriptures, aren't there? There's a kind of echo of the Garden of Eden here. What happened at the tree? The man and the woman who refused to be servants, who sought equality with God and wouldn't let go, and who disobeyed, and at the tree refused to be servants and died. Whereas with this one, at the tree, he showed how obedient he was as the servant of God, and he too died in order that we might have life. Or perhaps even more obviously, because the language here certainly echoes Isaiah 52 and 53, doesn't it? That the one who is highly exalted would become the servant of the Lord who for our sakes and for our salvation would die on the cross. And it's in the light of that, that the big thing in this passage, the mind of Christ, it's in the light of that, that in a way I think Paul relieves the tension of this because this is not the end. And he turns to reflect for a moment on the mind of the Father. What did the Father make of this? And here is the relief that the Father looked on this and exalted His Son and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and call Jesus Lord, to the glory of the Father. And every tongue confess before Him in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, no exception, one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think perhaps we ought to feel the, the, the tension here. Jesus becoming obedient to the death of the cross indicates that there is one who has given Him a command 
The father has given him a command. He has been obedient to his father. And his father's will, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's, that's what's in the first part of this confession. But what's in the second part is that this same Lord who was pleased to bruise him has highly exalted him. Um, I think in the New Testament, I went to feel this tension, you know. How can it be that the Father, whose will has been that His Son should be crucified in our place, could there be any greater cruelty on the part of a father than that he would will his son would be crucified, even were it in the place of others? And how does that comport with the fact that he has highly exalted him when he commanded him to be crucified? And the answer, of course, lies in the fact that that crucifixion was his filial obedience to the plan that he had shared in eternity with his Father. There is a place where Jesus himself gives us an insight into the significance of this tremendous tension between the awful outpouring of God's judgment upon his Son and the fact that he highly exalts him. It's in what Jesus says in, in John chapter 10 when he says this, the reason, the reason the Father loves me is because I lay down my life. Some of you are fathers, mothers. You go and watch your children perform or play in a team or play an individual sport, and because you're restrained Christians, you don't get into fights with the other parents, but there are moments when your son runs down the touchline or your daughter scores a goal or she plays beautifully where everything in you rises, and you think, that's my son, that's my daughter. I've always loved them, but I love them now because of the way they're fulfilling the potential that I saw in them. And the moment in the heart of God the Father, in the whole of human history, when I think we can say He had like experience, was when His Son, in obedience to the plan, laid down his life humbly, forgetful of self, overwhelmed with love for sinners like you and like me. I've often thought that if ever there was anyone who could sing, my Jesus, I love thee, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. It was this moment when the Son became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And you see, it's that that 
weights Paul's exhortation, that gives power to Paul's exhortation. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is, this is really interesting. I, d- I don't know if you find this about Paul. Um, in some ways, I think you should. He can be desperately frustrating to 21st century people for this reason. He's constantly exhorting us to do things. And I'm not sure there's a single instance in his letters where he says, and this is how you'll do it. But we don't like that in the 21st century. Remember years ago, my, my daughter, when she was a young teenager, took me aside and said to me, Dad, I can, I can tell you how to preach in such a way that people will want to take notes of your sermons. I've never been really excited about people taking notes of my sermons, but I love my daughter. I said, well, how do I do this? She said, it's simple. I notice any time you say there are three things you need to do, or there are two things you need to know. People are grasping for a pen, the ladies are in their handbags looking for a piece of paper, because by instinct, we all want those two or three simple things that will solve the problem. So, she said, Dad, you just need to do that, and they'll all be taking notes of your sermons. Why did Paul not do that? Why does Paul not tell us how we become humble. But you see, that's the point. That's exactly what he's doing here. This is how we become humble. Not by working out the things that we are to do, but by gazing upon the one who has done it. Because we are united to him through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who as we gaze upon the Lord Jesus will transform us more and more into His likeness. And of course, that's Paul's basic principle, isn't it? Our lives are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Or as he puts at the end of 2 Corinthians 3, he says, you know, my kinsmen according to the flesh look at the Scriptures, and there's a veil over their faces, and they, they cannot penetrate to see through the veil to the person of the Lord Jesus. But through the Holy Spirit in Christ, that veil has been removed, so that when we look at the Scriptures, what we see is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, as we gaze upon Him, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. The kind of glory that we see here in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory that is so at leisure from itself that it's willing, as David was saying earlier on, to bend the knee before Him and therefore to bend the knee before each other. Here's a very fascinating, trivial pursuit piece of information about Philippians. Paul wrote 13 letters that we have in the New Testament. 
This is the only letter that he wrote where he describes himself just by one word, servant of Jesus Christ. Well, boy, I simply sped over that when we started reading Philippians, but now we see it's the key to everything, isn't it? He doesn't say Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, as he says to some other churches. He didn't say Paul, a servant and an apostle, as he says to the Romans. He just says, crown and joy, church. I'm your servant for Jesus' sake. And for Jesus' sake, in Jesus, be servants of one another. And so, in all my struggles to be obedient to this exhortation, the one thing needful, the one thing that will cure me from my self-obsession and therefore that bondage that means I'm not at leisure to serve others, is that my mind is filled with Christ and my affections are fully towards Him. And when that is true, the transformation begins to take place. By the Spirit, who Christ is, what He has done, begins to embed itself in me, so that just as Simon Peter never describes the scene that John does in John 13 when Jesus left the place of preeminence and took the servant's towel and washed the disciples' feet before He returned to the place of preeminence. That picture was permanently embedded in Peter's mind, which is why towards the close of his first letter, he says, now all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves with humility. I guess the color has probably gone out of fashion these days, but um, the color mauve was invented by um, a young man by the name of William Perkin. And he, was, he, was, he became a very fine uh, confessing Christian believer. And when he was on his deathbed, uh, somebody said to Sir William Perkin, as he was at that time, Sir William it will not be long before you hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. No doubt wanting to encourage him. And William Perkins said, give my love to the children in the Sunday school. And then he repeated the words of Isaac Watts hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And then he said, proud? Who could be proud? Well, that's a great way to die. But what Paul is wanting, not just that we die that way, but that as we gaze on the face of Jesus Christ, we are transformed, begin to live that way.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which these verses have inspired so many songs of praise to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that with all the saints who have seen the glory of the Lord Jesus, that we too may gaze upon His face, be more and more changed from our defaced lives to show His grace and His humility in the assurance that You resist the proud, but You do give grace to those who are becoming humble. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.